This is a Radio.com original. This is the Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about, well, the global coronavirus pandemic. Of course, number of confirmed cases in the U.S. surpassed 4 million today, most of them coming from California, which surpassed New York in the number of COVID-19 infections. Yet there are significantly fewer deaths in the Golden State. So what's California's secret to keeping more people alive? The Trump administration has made deals with pharmaceutical companies to deliver coronavirus vaccines to the American public. But it is up to the administration to determine how to distribute them. Can we count on the federal government to do this quickly and effectively? The pandemic has a lot of people rethinking whether they want to go and vote in person in the November election. States now figuring out how to send people mail-in and absentee ballots. So will this lead to a higher turnout or just a mess? And our new normal has really exposed the class divide between the wealthy and not-so-wealthy. Life has still been good for those who can afford to pay a little more for things like haircuts, child care, even entertainment. We'll find out more about the pandemic lifestyles of the rich and sometimes famous. Doesn't seem like it's all so bad when you're out on your boat, right? No. Yeah. Coronavirus pandemic has a devastating effect on collegiate athletics. Universities have shut down to limit the spread of COVID. Many colleges bracing for a huge loss of income. And some are already cutting the sports programs. So we'll take a look at what's next for college sports. But let us begin with California versus New York. While the Golden State is now the country's leader when it comes to the total number of coronavirus cases, our East Coast counterpart still has about three times as many deaths. Is the real California so-called miracle keeping more COVID-19 patients alive? With us is Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. He served on advisory boards, review panels for the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health, and the CDC. So, doctor, we know that new infections in California, a lot of them involve younger people. That could prevent the worst outcome, death. Is that the full story? That's a large part of the story. So if you look at who's getting sick in California right now, over 50% of our cases are occurring in individuals between the ages of 18 and 50. And they only account for 6% of our total deaths. So we've had about 525 deaths out of the roughly almost 8,000 deaths in the state in individuals under the age of 50. So that's a big driver of the lower mortality rates that we're seeing. What about differences in how people are treated now when they do make it to the hospital, as opposed to when people were going to the hospitals in high numbers in New York at the beginning of this? So we've certainly gotten a lot better at treatment, particularly the supportive care part, the part around providing oxygenation, making sure that we're ventilating patients well, trying to avoid other organ failure. We now know that dexamethasone will reduce mortality in our most severe patients by about 30%. So pretty much everybody is getting dexamethasone who's on oxygen or mechanical ventilation. And of course, we're using remdesivir as well. So that seems to be more active, more effective in our less severely ill patients than those requiring oxygen and mechanical ventilation. I, I, I guess it's going to be difficult to peer into a crystal ball, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. In the next months ahead, 
do you see anything on the horizon? And, and let's take vaccines for the moment totally off the table. Uh, do you see in terms of therapeutics anything coming online within the next, say, three to six months so that somebody who gets COVID-19 needs to be hospitalized has an even greater chance of a pretty good outcome? So I I think the two exciting areas coming ahead, one are around monoclonal antibodies. So this is where we take antibodies directly against the virus, similar to what we're doing with convalescent plasma right now. So taking sera from people who have recovered from the infection, getting those antibodies and getting them in. So I think that will be a very interesting area going forward. And the other is there are a couple new antivirals that are being rolled out. So these are experimental drugs that target the replication of the virus. So they actually interfere with the virus's ability to grow and and spread. And so I think that also will be exciting to see what happens over the next three to six months. When we're taking us and looking at New York and the comparisons between the two, there was some idea earlier on that maybe there were different strains at work, that they got the Italy cases and we got the Chinese cases. Has that been found to be true? So so not to the extent that you're you're probably suggesting. So all RNA viruses mutate as they grow and and spread. They make mistakes as they replicate and they slightly change. But most of those changes have no real impact either on the ability of the virus to spread or how deadly it is. And at least so far, we haven't seen substantial changes in the virus to say that it's different strains of the virus causing the different outcomes. Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. Leaders of five pharmaceutical companies with coronavirus vaccine deals with the Trump administration have told Congress they'll have them available by early 2021. But they say it is up to the federal government to figure out how to distribute them. So can the Trump administration in January handle such a thing? especially after how it has handled this whole pandemic. With us is Jan Schakowsky, Illinois Democratic Congresswoman, member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So do you think the administration's capable of getting all this out there, distributing the vaccines across the country when we uh, failed to curb the spread and get a lot of testing in place at the beginning of this? Well, certainly distribution has been an issue. You know, we have really not had a capacity to manufacture here in the United States for a long time. Many of our drugs um, and the components of drugs have come from China. And so one of the challenges right now is certainly going to be the um, mechanics of, of distribution. But the other one that I really focused on when these heads of the pharma companies came to our committee was the, the issue I focused on was how much money our consumers, either as taxpayers because we've already contributed um, well over about $12 billion to the pharmaceutical companies to um, develop drugs. Um, and as consumers, are they then going to also turn around and charge people to get the vaccine when it's available, which I think is a, would be very, very dangerous. What was the answer that she got? So the answers that, uh, that, that we got is that uh, when, when I asked them, could they really assure us that, they, that these would be uh, affordable? Would they do them at a no, in a no-profit situation? Um, only um, Johnson & Johnson said, well, 
short term for the duration of uh, the duration of the uh, the um, they call it the emergency part of this. They would do it for uh, in a not-for-profit way. Every all the others just absolutely point blank said no. They they were going to make money. They were going to make money. So we don't know. Is it going to be truly available both because of the distribution and because of the cost? Let me ask you what might be a, a tough question to answer, though, because since we are having an election in November, who knows what will happen in January? Either it will be a continuation of the Trump administration or it will be a new administration coming in toward the tail end of January. But in that kind of transition, if there is a transition, is that likely to even slow things down even more? No, I think that the that there is such a demand right now to address this. What I'm actually more worried about in some ways is that it'll be too speeded up. Um, you know, you want to make sure that all the clinical trials are done as they should. We don't want to find out at the last minute that it's not really safe for children or for old, older adults. Um, and I know that there is such desperation, and I get it, to try and get a drug to market that we just want to make sure that all of the cautions are, are taken before we put everything into just making sure that a particular drug is done. And, and, you, and, and wait a minute, you're, you're totally right about that, but here's the problem, Congresswoman, and, and, and I'm sure you, you realize this. There are an awful lot of people out there who are against all kinds of vaccinations, and there's the danger that they are going to seize on all of that uncertainty and say, well, you see, even even people who are for vaccinations yeah. are warning that maybe they rushed it, maybe it's not as safe as it should be for kids or for older people, and then the danger might be not enough people get vaccinated to build up enough herd immunity. Well, I, I actually... Um do think, no matter how long it takes, that we're going to have to do a real job in making sure that people take it. I'm so distressed by this anti-vax attitude that I'm, I'm seeing, the, the, the lack of um, even absolutely proven meals, me, measles um, vaccinations, which are safe and so effective. Um, you know, we are having to convince people that it's okay to do. So that is, that is uh, an issue. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. We just have to make sure that the, we have to follow the science. We have to follow the science. We can't have um, the President of the United States coming and saying this is absolutely proven, just as how he suggested maybe we should ingest bleach. Um, you know, we, we have to follow the science and make sure that the drugs that we're putting out there are appropriately distributed. There may be some drugs that have to be um, in various sectors. Here's a drug that, and the dose that we feel is safe for people in nursing homes that are vulnerable, very vulnerable right now. And here are drugs or dose of a drug that has really um, been tested on children. And by the way, we want to make sure that these um, clinical trials have the kind of diversity in our country as well. Um, and I know in, in Chicago, I was just talking today to the head of uh, public health in the city of Chicago. We need to make sure that um, people of color 
are volunteering to be part of these clinical trials because they are dying at a rate greater than others, and it's really important that they're in these trials. That's uh, Jen Schakowsky, Illinois Democratic Congresswoman. Congresswoman, thank you so much. The pandemic has lots of people worried and nervous about voting in person. They're looking to still vote, but at home, states, including California, are working to expand access to mail-in voting as a safer alternative. But the November election is coming up quickly. What could possibly go wrong? Of course. Tyler Fisher, Deputy Director of Reform and Partnerships with Unite America, nonpartisan group advocating for political reform. Tyler, not much time to go. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think, though, uh, states are generally moving in the right direction. Uh, we're down to just eight states, uh, down from 17 a few months ago, that are requiring voters to have an excuse uh, to vote at home. Um, and uh, election officials are working diligently to scale the systems. Uh, there's three kind of key ways we want to make sure all voters can vote. That's early voting, uh, in-person voting, and uh, vote at home. Um, so I think we're on the right track. There's a lot of work to be done, uh, but there's still enough time. Okay, so how do you address uh, the criticism from the White House in, in principle that this is just an open invitation invitation to uh, voter fraud? Well, I think uh, the president's wrong on uh, whether or not uh, vote at home increases voter fraud. The state of Oregon has mailed more than 20 million ballots over the last decade out to voters with only 12 cases of proven fraud. Uh, Colorado's a full vote at home system and has consistently been ranked the most secure um, election system in the country. And, you know, the, the president's campaign is sending campaign emails encouraging voters to request absentee ballots and to vote by mail. Um, and like all political candidates, election officials in the media, um, they're out there encouraging people to flatten the election curve, request ballots early, and return them early. Um, so, you know, what he's saying on Twitter is different than what his campaign's saying. Um, and I think everybody has a responsibility to be encouraging uh, individuals to vote at home. So there's that, you know, fraud claim, but then there's also battles that could happen along the sides about which votes will count, when they should be counted, what the rules are about postmarking, that kind of thing, because those battles are going to be fought, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, California uh, just passed new pieces of legislation that allows ballots to be counted if they're received within 17 days of Election Day. This is important because USPS is going to be really overwhelmed with the number of ballots um, all across the country, and that's why county clerks should be working with their local office. Uh, But it's important that uh, elected officials, the media, um, celebrities be out there educating the public that uh, we might not have election outcomes uh, on election night. This is especially true because uh, three key states, their battlegrounds, uh, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, the county clerks there won't be able to open mail ballots until election day. Uh, so we're going to be delayed uh, if the election is close, especially in those three battlegrounds. I'm curious if you know how most other Western democracies handle this sort of thing. Well, that's right. Um, around the world, um, uh, vote by mail is a system um, that's used. And what I do know is that uh, the states in, in the United States that have expanded uh, vote by mail have seen increases of voter participation 7 to 10%. And it's really important because amongst OCED countries, uh, of which there's 32, uh, the U.S. ranks 28th in voter participation. 
Uh, so adopting uh, photo home systems, as California has, where we mail out ballots to everybody, um, is a really good way uh, to boost that participation and, and make us competitive with our international uh, peers. So it sounds like you're feeling pretty good that we'll be able, or a lot of people will be able to get their votes in without having to go somewhere. Because over the last few elections we've seen in different states, there's still been long lines, and you see everybody out there for even hours sometimes trying to distance as much as they can, wearing those masks, but still waiting together. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there's still some big risks. Uh, if we don't keep in-person polling locations open, we risk disenfranchising uh, young and minority voters who are more likely to vote in person. Uh, voters can help and volunteers can help solve that problem by going to powerthepolls.org uh, and signing up to be poll workers. Uh, poll workers in this country tend to be the elderly. They're backing out uh, as they're the most compromised uh, in this pandemic. Uh, so keeping the polling locations open is really important. Um, and making sure we scale vote at home is really important uh, so we don't disenfranchise uh, rural and old, older voters. Um, so um, there's still work to be done. Um, states, um, unlike California, that aren't ahead of the curve on vote at home still have some policy work to do. They should be mailing absentee ballot request forms to everybody. Uh, 18 states are prepaying postage on ballots, but all states should be doing that. Uh, we should have online request forms. We should remove witness uh, requirements. we got to invest in signature verification technology, so uh, definitely still some work to be done. Tyler Fisher, Deputy Director of Reform Partnerships with Unite America, a group advocating for political reform. The pandemic has cut out a lot of things in our lives that we probably took for granted, you know, like going to the movies, getting a haircut, and taking the kids somewhere fun. But not everyone is stuck at home feeling miserable and stressed and scruffy from overgrown hair. <laughs> If you have the money, you can enjoy life as you always have, just with even more privacy. Like, for example, if you rent a movie theater for just you and your friends and family, which apparently you actually can do. There are businesses that are doing quite well right now, catering to people who can afford it. We're going to talk to Katie Provinziano, founder and CEO of Westside Nannies, and Lori Traub, who owns My Spa To Go, which brings a day spa to you. So, Lori, I'm stressed. There's a pandemic. I call you up. You come to my house. What do you have? Sure. So, um, hello, everyone. Let's see. So, yeah, you give us a call. Well, first of all, it's really simple. You just go online, you choose the service that you want, and we basically book the appointment for you. You pick the time, the day. We come to your place of residence with all the supplies. There is nothing you need to do, and we provide the service. That's basically, that's it. We want to make it as easy and most comfortable as possible for the customer. So the only thing they have to do is just figure out a day and a time, and we pretty much take care of the rest. So what's available and how much? Okay, so for um, California, L.A., we offer um, nail services, so manicures, pedicures, and lots of uh, females request waxing services. So we do waxing, um, massages, um, and then hair and makeup services, too. How have things been going for you with all of this so, going on? Okay, so that's a great question. And clearly for us, it's quite obvious that it's going really well due to salons being closed. <laughs> yeah, and they're even not when open, they're, right? Exactly. And even if they are open, they're limited capacity, and everyone's questioning the, you know, the, the sanitation of it. So, I mean, that's where we just, you know, that's where we come into play. So for us, it's a no-brainer because we've been doing this even pre-pandemic. So now that 
pandemic and post-pandemic has set in, people are just discovering what we do. But we've kind of been doing this for people who really never wanted to go to salons in the first place. (laughs) Okay, Lori, hang hang there with us. Let's also uh, talk now with uh, Katie Provenziano, who is founder and CEO of Westside Nannies. So uh, we heard from Lori that you can stay at home, and if you have the money, you can get spa treatments, essentially, at home. What do you offer? Well, that sounds amazing. I think I need to call Lori and schedule a pedicure. (laughs) (laughs) We we place nannies, newborn care specialists, and private educators with families around the country. And I think we're seeing a huge increase in demand right now specifically for private educators. In Los Angeles specifically, LAUSD and and major school systems around the country have said, look, we're not going back in person. You're going to be learning via Zoom. And that's been a really unpopular thing with most parents, and they are calling us looking for private educators to homeschool their kids and to manage uh, Zoom learning at home. And and how are they trained to do that better? Because I think, you know, what you're saying there, this hit a lot of parents. A, they're trying to do their jobs, and B, online learning doesn't come naturally for everybody. So how does how does somebody that you send over make it easier for the kids? Well, I think parents just are worried about their children really falling behind academically and also feeling socially isolated right now. Uh, Online learning was pretty much thrust onto people um, in the beginning of the pandemic, and most people were really unprepared, and they saw that their children just didn't learn in the same way. And then meanwhile, parents are still working, and they probably have more work than ever, and their jobs are just as demanding, if not more, and they're working from home. And so trying to also oversee Zoom learning of their kids and ensure that their child's learning is just a little too much for the average parent. So those that can are hiring private educators or educationally-minded nannies to come in, manage that Zoom schedule, make sure the children are learning. A lot of families have multiple kids. And just keeping track of all the links, all the passwords, making sure they're understanding and learning the concepts and following up with any homework. Making sure so they actually log on to the class. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Katie, yeah, uh, so, I mean, Katie, start, starting, starting very quickly with you, and then, and then I will, same question to Lori. Give us an idea what this costs. What does it cost, uh, Katie, to have somebody come to your home and teach your kids? It depends a little bit on the candidate's qualifications as well as the job, but on average, we're seeing rates of about 30 to $60 an hour. 30 to 60 an hour. And uh, Lori, what about for the spa services? Yeah, so again, it also ranges, and it depends on the service, but pretty much for like a mani-pedi service, it starts at about like 150 and then massages are starting at like 175 And you were saying earlier that, you know, your business predates all this, and you hate to, to go, oh, yeah, Yay, pandemic. Um, but do you kind of feel like this is your moment? Oh, not even a question. Unfortunately, yeah. But you know what? We feel good about it because we're making so many people happy and you know that, that we can actually offer these services. So we're just thrilled that we can actually like do things for people and like something that they actually really appreciate and need more than anything. And it just it makes you feel better, too. I mean, we can't – I can tell you how many people just tell us, like, you don't know what you did to just – put a smile on this person's face or my face just because everyone's having a tough time. We so needed really self-care. Right? So, so Katie, yeah, if, 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 Katie yeah. if, I, if I want a nanny, how much is it going to cost me? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where you live. But in L.A., for professional experienced nannies, about right. 25 to 30 an hour is the going rate. I want a nanny. <laughs> I do. I don't know if anyone's going to put up with <laughs> you. I mean, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, 
be a tough one. I know, I know. it would the be poor tough. Kid. <laughs> yeah, I feel well, really, really bad. But uh, I, but I think Lori's right. I mean, it's nice to be able to provide a valuable service during this really stressful time, and just take a little bit of the stress off of the busy parents that are having to handle so much right now. And is everybody like, tested regularly, or any concerns about that? You know, walking into somebody's house. We're encouraging everyone to talk about it and just to make sure that they're on the same page with how they are choosing to socially distance and quarantine during this time. And a lot of families are requesting that the caregiver have a negative COVID test before they start the job. Katie Provinciano, founder and CEO of Westside Nannies, and Lori Traub, who owns My Spa To Go, number two to go. I really do want a nanny. After Someone to take to, care after of all listening this. to them, yeah, I, I I want somebody I can just turn to, and and I want a nanny. I'm, Could you help me with everything? Yeah, you know, I don't care what it costs. <laughs> the world of college athletes has been turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen seasons shorten, conferences decide not to participate in fall sports, and even whole programs cut or suspended. So, what is the state of college sports right now? And what's next? Dr. Karen Weaver, Associate's Clinical Professor of Sports Management at LeBeau College of Business at Drexel University, talks with KYW's Matt Leon. Turning the corner towards the end of July, over the last few weeks, we have seen a lot of decisions from conferences, from universities, uh, basically deciding not to play sports in the fall. Has kind of the cascade effect we've seen been about what you thought it would be? Yeah, I think the reality really has settled in. Um, Conferences, of course, are spread out over multiple states. And as each state tries to wrestle with their with where they are managing this crisis, it's been different. And even if you look at the state of Pennsylvania, how Philadelphia and the five counties surrounding it have reacted is different than the central part of Pennsylvania. And now all of a sudden we have a spike in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. And that causes things to change in terms of the calculation as to whether it's safely, you're safely able to bring people from all over the country back to your campus. And then also take those same that same group of people to other areas of the country where you don't know what the safety precautions might be. So we've seen a lot of people talk, hopefully, and I understand it, about a lot of the sports that maybe aren't being played in the fall, specifically, obviously, the, the headline is football, being moved to the spring. And I think reflexively you understand the possibility, but it seems to me, even if we un- operate under the idea that the virus is completely under control by the spring, you're going to be putting a lot of stress, not just on facilities, but on support staff and stuff like that. How feasible do you think this this possibility is? I think it's tremendously difficult because not many schools have a dedicated football stadium that doesn't allow any other sport to play in it. Typically, the reason you build a stadium is to have it, you have multiple purposes, right? It can be used for football in the fall, maybe soccer, but then in the spring, it might be used for lacrosse. It might be used for track and field and and a variety of scheduling um, jujitsu will have to be done in order to try to figure this out. Uh, the other problem is, is it, what do you do with, with rescheduling? Uh, you're, in some schools, your semester goes from the middle of January until the end of April. And so are you proposing starting games in January? And if so, in the northeast part of the United States, how many people want to sit outside in a January snowstorm in, in you know, Center County, Pennsylvania? What do you do in terms of your, your revenues and your staffing 
and certainly the, the overload that will create on the internal staff like athletic trainers. Looking at it from the other side, though, how devastating will would an empty year be for a lot of these programs? And I'm not even talking your top-shelf million-dollar college football, like SEC stuff like that. I just mean across the board, if, if these institutions lose a year of, of competition – financially, to the program, to the personnel? I mean, how, how tough would that be? Devastating. And I'm paying close attention to what's going on with schools that are what we call tuition dependent. Those are schools that every year, you know, need those, those revenues to come in, the athletes to want to come to campus and play that sport and pay that tuition revenue. And so if they don't have a motivation to come to campus because their sport has been postponed or, you know, canceled for the remainder of the fall semester. I think a lot of schools are worrying about what their enrollment rates will be. We've always had this thing in, in college um, admissions called the summer melt, where the excitement of the, of the spring is it melts away in the summer and, and not the enrollment doesn't necessarily happen as much as they thought. But there's real concern this year that that summer melt could turn into a summer avalanche in terms of uh, students deciding just it just isn't worth it to try to come back and do something where they're not getting to do everything that they want to do as part of their college experience. Some of these towns that are, are college towns past the damage to the university. I mean, they're going to get flipped upside down if there's not a college football season or if there's not a college football season, even with fans. Yeah, there's no doubt that that's been uh, uh, heavy on a lot of people's minds because places like State College and Iowa City and uh, Iowa and Bloomington, Indiana, are true college towns. There's there's no other way to look at them. But you also have to think about their the impact of just not bringing students back, let alone football games. I mean, State College, Penn State has you know forty forty two thousand students on campus. They're used to a certain amount of traffic in their bars and restaurants and and in the bookstore and other places, even just apartment leases. So the ecosystem is dependent on what colleges do. And football, of course, helps to drive it six or seven Saturdays a year. But there's another ecosystem at play that's equally as damaging. One California city not messing around when it comes to face coverings. The city of Glendale has approved very large fines for people who are caught outside without a mask. The first fine starts at $400. The second offense, $1,000. The third offense, $2,000. And Glendale police say it will not hesitate to hand out the fines. A few uh, exemptions, though. You can lower your mask when you're alone or you're with members of your household. And kids under the age of two can be outdoors without face coverings. Glendale, you have been warned. Thanks for listening to us. Stay well. $2,000. $2,000. Imagine $2,000. You think you'd learn after the $1,000 ticket. Yeah, but 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 if but that's why you should wear a mask, because if they give you a fine or something, if you have the mask, they won't recognize you. Exactly. Everyone gets away. I got it all figured out. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.